I was going to say, I should go downstairs and get my bottle of Whistle Pig and Hill Rock and put it right here. But yeah, it's too it's, far to go downstairs. It's 10 a.m. <laughs> it's, it's, it's noon somewhere. <laughs> That's there right. you go. Okay, noon's, noon's typical whiskey drinking time. Like it'll you can get the pass on that. Yeah, Don well, Draper style. I, for me, it, it, there is no inappropriate time. I mean, you know, that's what I do. <laughs> hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode. And before we kick this off, we got some more news to talk about. And first, I'm very excited to actually announce that I've been notified that Bourbon Pursuit is going to have a presence at Bourbon and Beyond. This is a rock festival mixed with bourbon that happens. This is going to be the second year it's going to happen here in Louisville, Kentucky. We can't announce yet about what exactly we'll be doing, but just know that we are going to be there and going to be doing something that's going to be really cool. So hopefully that you are now starting to plan to attend. So visit bourbonandbeyond.com to look more about upcoming news, events, as well as artists that can be announced. For anybody that is thinking about or on the fence of helping support the show through Patreon, I want you to know that I have finally gone through and updated everything so you know exactly what you're gonna be getting at every single level. So when you start looking, you can see where the koozies and the stickers, the patches that you can sew onto anything. We've got bottle totes, we've got t-shirts, we've got Van Winkle samples, and even the opportunity to be a guest on the show or help us interview a guest. It should be really cool. So go to patreon.com, help us make the show even better. Oh, and always access to barrel picks. Can't forget about that one. So our guest today, Dave Pickerel, is known by many in the bourbon world as sort of this guy that goes around to a bunch of different places and kind of uh, becomes a master distiller of sorts at um, a multitude of places. And we're going to talk about a few of the places that he's touched as well as touch on Whistlepig and a few different things, which you've might heard of. But I think if anybody doesn't know, you know, Dave has got a great history being from the Makers family, Makers Mark family. And just from that, he's very, very well known in the bourbon world in general. So he's just a great character to know. And he's got a wealth of information that I'm sure you're going to learn something from. As usual, make sure you're showing us some support by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can get all of the new episodes beamed straight to your email if you go to birdpursuit.com, scroll down, find the email button, and subscribe us there. And as always, subscribe to us on iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook. We push everything out through audio and video. We're gonna come at you at all angles. With that, enjoy this week's episode. And they're off for another Get 270 2020 Unicorn Raffle. Your $20 ticket gives you not one, but two chances to win from our lineup of 20 Woodford Reserve treasures, including the grand prize, the rarest unicorn yet, the Woodford Reserve Kentucky Derby 150 Baccarat Edition. Only 150 bottles were made and is just like the one the Derby winning owner receives. Quit horsing around and get your $20 tickets now at give270.org. Charitable gaming license ORG 0002703. From their bar to yours, Chad and Sarah of the popular YouTube channel It's Bourbon Night bring you their favorite at-home old-fashioned mix with the new Elemental Elixir's Golden Hour Syrup. It's a custom-made syrup with notes of bold black tea, warm spices, and orange zest. All you need is your favorite whiskey and ice. No bitters needed. 
One bottle makes 16 drinks, so that's only $1 cocktail before you add your own whiskey. They can also be enjoyed in other cocktails or spirits, mocktails, coffee, tea, and anything you can think of. It's crafted locally in Lexington, Kentucky, and you can get your bottle now at whiskeyambitions.com. Ed Bly and Rising Tide Spirits are back again with a new release of Old Stubborn Bourbon. And this release of Old Stubborn is a premium hand marriage of 10, 11, and 12-year cask drink, barely filtered pot still bourbon. It comes in at a staggering 123.8 proof. And the flavoring grain for this one, which the last one was weeded, but this time it's now rye. Rich, sweet, and bold with a long finish that's sure to be another eye-opener. You can order online at Sealbox or TheBourbonConcierge.com. And you can even purchase in person at Revival Vintage Spirits and even now with very few select stores in Kentucky. You can get it now while you can, but be sure to do it because it's not going to last long. Welcome back to the episode of the Bourbon Pursuit Podcast, the official podcast of bourbon. Today we are Pursuit Headquarters, Pursuit Headquarters but you know we're doing this over Hangouts and it would have been great to be able to talk to our guests in louisville because this is where he resides as well but he said that he's only there uh probably like a month out of the year right <laughs> yeah he's all over the place so it'd probably been harder to pin him down so we're glad that we could finally get him because we've been wanting to interview this gentleman for quite some time he's one of the you know the icons in this industry we haven't yet interviewed so i'm super excited to uh talk to him really i, I think so too i mean not only that is you know he put and really has put a few names on the map, they wouldn't be as big as they are today without him. So I think it's a, a good time to go ahead and introduce our guest. So today we have Dave Pickerel. Dave is well known in the bourbon world as the former master distiller at Maker's Mark. He owns a consulting business where he has designed equipment, systems, and processes for almost over 100 distilleries worldwide, including some big ones that you might have heard of, uh, Whistlepig, Hill Rock, Corsair, and many others. So it's <laughs> good to be here. <laughs> okay, we we're like, where'd he go? Where'd he go? Yeah, <laughs> I'm kind of fading in and out. It's okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, first let's let's kind of start at the beginning. Do you remember your introduction into bourbon or whiskey, and kind of what even got you on this train? Um, well, let, uh, let me give you the story about what got me on the train first, because I think that's more engaging than 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 how I got onto whiskey itself. Um, I grew up just outside of Dayton, Ohio, in a Kind of what I would call meager startup. I mean, the house we lived in, I think my parents paid $14,000 for um, and uh, had to take out a 30-year mortgage on it. Um, but uh, um, yeah, we grew up with nothing extra. And and But our, our family deal was on Sundays, we'd go for a drive. And and you couldn't not pass a factory or two. And so we're driving around, seeing these factories. You know, I would start peppering dads with questions. What's that tank and what's that pipe and what's that smoke coming out of that thing over there? Wouldn't take dad very long. And he'd go, son, the only person that understands that's the chemical engineer, which meant shut up. I'm not answering any more of your stupid questions. Um, <laughs> but by the time I was five years old, um, I remember I'd, I wanted to know the answers. And I remember this was before seatbelts. You know, and I jumped off the off the seat onto the wheel well. And I grabbed the hold of the front seat and got right up as close as I could to dad. And I said, fine then I'm going to be the chemical engineer because I need to understand these things. And that's the only thing I ever wanted to do in life. Um, by the time I was 10, I knew that my, my little town had one chemical engineer and it was the guy that ran the cement plant that I needed a lot of help that 
science course known to man, which meant take summer school in advance. It also meant somebody else was going to have to pay for college. And the only way I could figure to do that was through sports. And so I started playing sports. And even as a kid, I was pragmatic. I started with baseball because that's what most kids start with. By the time I was 13, I realized my batting average was worse than a pitcher. So I <laughs> probably wasn't going to get a scholarship in baseball. And even though I was a really good first baseman, I gave it up. Uh, not because I didn't love it, but because I needed to move on to other things. And, uh, you know, I tried basketball, but my vertical leap wouldn't clear the Sunday newspaper. So I guess that was out. Yeah, I'm vertically, uh, I'm vertically leap challenged as well. So we're, we're good. I, we got, a, no we got a, a commonality there. Yeah, no hops at all. And uh, um, so it was going to come down to football or track. And I held all my high school records in the indoor and outdoor shot and disc. And I was first team all state at offensive tackle in Ohio. And lo and behold, West Point came along and offered me a full scholarship. So uh, off I go to West Point and uh, major. They didn't have chemical engineering, but they had chemistry. So I figure at least I'm heading in the right direction and uh, um, finished my my time at West Point and then went off to do my obligated military service. And uh, so I was counting on five years of active service there and kind of like indentured servitude. You, You know, I got a college education. You get five years of good, hard work. And as I was nearing the end, West Point calls up and says, you know, you were a really good chemistry student. We'd like you to come back as a professor. Okay. I know there's more to this story. And they said, yes, for the mere cost of an additional six years. No, wow. (laughs) No, thank you. You'll get your master's in any chemistry related field. And I said, chemical engineering. And they go, sure. Why not? So I went to the university of Louisville Made and got my master's in chemical engineering. And while I was there, uh, my mentor was a guy named Dr. Charlie Plank. Rest his soul. He died, I think it was just last year, two days from now. And uh, um, love him to death. He was the professor of thermodynamics, and which is where distillation lies. And while I was standing for my uh, um, test in, in uh, thermodynamics and distillation, I got a 99 and the second high score in class was a 35. And uh, so I you were, you were the person that they call the curve killer then. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was the nice things. Yeah. Um, but they did call me the thermo god and grain man um, because I'm an, it, it's not that I'm smarter. It's that I'm an idiot savant. I can literally close my eyes and see molecules run around and still know where they're going. <laughs> and, uh, and Dr. Plank never forgot that. And so I went away, taught at West Point, finished my my total 11 years of service. And I was just ready to go be a chemical engineer. Had 59 job offers in petrochem and process chemical businesses. And I just needed a a letter of reference. I called up Dr. Plank and asked him for a reference letter. And he says, no. I said, excuse me? He says, says, frankly, in 40 years, I've never seen anything quite like this, but I have a perfect match and the beverage alcohol industry needs you. And there was a small consulting firm in Louisville at the time called Rotec. And it was like four full-time employees and a bunch of part-timers. And they had global outreach in beverage alcohol consulting. And they had just landed a massive contract with Brown Foreman. And they couldn't perform it without another chemical engineer. And so over lunch one day and offered me the job during lunch. And it seemed like a, a good deal. And I took it. And so I came to Louisville. And for about five years, I ran around the world building distilleries and parts of distilleries. One of my clients was Maker's Mark. One day, I'm down at Maker's Mark doing some work. Bill Samuels walks outside. 
flags me over. And, you know, when Bill Samuels flags you over, you, you come. And uh, it's kind of like, yes, sir. <laughs> and uh, so, so I walk over and he goes, did you know that we're looking for our next master distiller? I said, no, sir, I didn't. He goes, well, we are. That would explain why you didn't apply. He goes, we, we just exhausted our entire candidate pool. Didn't find anybody we particularly like. We're tired of looking. We like you. If you want it, the job's yours. That was my whole interview. <laughs> nice. The only time in my life I ever stuttered, and it took me like 30 seconds to say yes, please. And uh, that began a 14-year journey of sitting at Bill Samuel's feet and uh, watching an absolute master at his trade um, grow the brand of Maker's Mark from about 75,000 cases to about 1.56 million to become the third best-selling bourbon in America. And uh, it was a great time to be there. But uh, 10 years ago, uh, my heart went on to other things. And I wanted to be involved in the craft movement, and in particular, um, to be involved in the resurgence of rye. And so I left Makers to, um, and to start a company called Oakview Consulting or Oakview Spirits. And originally, it was going to be four things. I was going to write. I was going to speak. I was going to help craft distilleries get started, especially with rye. And I was going to help companies that wanted to become more green, to just take one more step in that direction. And uh, um, I, I didn't anticipate how quickly the craft spirit movement was going to take off. And I quickly had so many, so much work in the craft spirit movement, I didn't have time for anything else. Why so did you we, want? Uh, why did you? want to bring back rod did you see it like good question um so um makers I, i'd say they made one mistake while i was there and that was in 2001 they let me be part of the team to resurrect george washington's distillery and uh and you know we've all had occasions like this you know you go out to a bar or something you see somebody you've never seen and you go oh they look interesting maybe i should go say hi so you walk over and you chat up a little bit and then that leads to maybe a drink, and then, then maybe we should continue this over dinner tomorrow night. And then one thing leads to another, and it becomes a full-blown romance. Well, that was me and rye whiskey. And, uh, um, and uh, um, you know, I got around to every distiller on my own time, went to every distillery in the world that made rye whiskey, um, started dreaming about what it would be like to make perfect rye. But back in, you know, 2001, nobody was drinking rye, and so I couldn't very well act on it. it was, so it was just a fantasy. Um, and but I kept volunteering for George Washington's distillery. In 2006, the cocktail culture hit, and and uh, bartenders started to say, "We can be professionals. We don't have to make all these stupid cocktails with the sexual innuendo names." Um, <laughs> you, know, you were you were thinking about sex on the beach with rye? Yeah, yeah, sex on the beach, slow, comfortable screw. I mean, it's on and on and on. And uh, they said we can actually make serious cocktails, and so they went started pulling out the old. Savoy 1930 cocktail manual to Jerry Thomas. And uh, they started reading and they said, would you look at that? The first Manhattan had rye in it. And the first julep had rye in it. And before the old fashioned was old, it had rye. And uh, on and on and on. Guess we should buy some rye. And in 2006, the category of rye jumped 20%. It's the first time it had grown in decades. And, I'm, and my heart leapt because the love of my life was coming to life. And 2007, it grew... 30%. And then I, in early 2008, um, I set off to, to be involved in it. And while some would say I caused the rye revolution, that's not true. 
But fortunately, I was one of the earliest people to see all the signs and jump in. And uh, which is how we got to Whistlepig. And, and one of the I think if somebody was going to write a Harvard Business Review article about Whistlepig, it wouldn't be about the great taste or the awesome products. It would be that we saw the opportunity quicker than anybody had and jumped into it with both feet. Um, so that's kind of the why. Yeah, we'll talk about Whistlepig a little bit later on. But yeah, keep going. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. No, but so, so, uh, so, you know, so I jumped and then uh, um, 2008 was a great year right up until the stock market thing happened. And two, <laughs> 2009 was not so good. Um, and uh, I mean, my poor kids, they were on, we were on water rations. You know, I basically told everybody, except for, except for breakfast, you can't drink anything that costs more than 50 cents a serving. Um, and Because uh, we were just on an austerity budget. You know, I ate ramen noodles most of the time. But, uh, um, but we got through it. And, uh, um, and uh, um, the craft movement took off again. And, and literally, I think I've built, I don't count. I deliberately don't count. But it's somewhere around, I've built somewhere around 50 distilleries um, since I left Maker's Mark um, from, from the ground up. And in addition to that, I've consulted for maybe another 50 or so, just helping them out any way I could. Um, we have a motto, we call it putting feet on dreams. And that is anybody that's got a dream of being involved in the craft spirit movement, we want to help them out. And, uh, and that's whatever it takes. Sometimes it's going to meet with congressmen and senators and lobbying for, for tax reform, which I'm glad to see we've got in the Tax Modernization Act, um, um, to go into vendors and beating them up to get costs down to to uh, designing systems that are extra efficient to save money and um, and keeping my personal um, costs low so that they can afford to have me. I always tell people at the end of the day, it probably saves you more money to have me than to not because of all the discounts I bring from the vendors. But uh, um, so I, you know, I haven't looked back. I, you know, I still call makers. We, um, I still sign maker stuff and uh, um, it's always going to be, you know, at, in my heart because the time at Maker was such a glorious time. So, I mean, people still, what, what was the last thing somebody actually asked you to sign for Makers? Oh, literally, um, I was up in Seattle and uh, and a guy pulled out a barrel head of just last week and pulls out a barrel head and a black Sharpie and said, you got to sign this. <laughs> I'm going, well, okay. <laughs> and uh, So it doesn't happen every day anymore, but it still happens with relative frequency. I, it, it still surprises me that, you know, I'm deeply honored that that even though I've been gone for almost 10 years, that that people still see me as associated and still ask me to sign. You know, I've never thought it was about me. It's all I've always thought it's about the brand and the brand can't sign. So I just sign in lieu of the brand. And uh, so it's it's an honor that people still see me as associated with makers. And, and I hope that I still represent them in a credible manner. Yeah. Um, so Makers, you know, has a great product. It's been a consistent product and it's never changed, I don't think, since its history. Was that kind of the reason you left is like, hey, I'm doing the same thing. You know, they don't want to change or doing or did, is that why it piqued your interest again in other things? Well, um, yeah, I'm I'm ADD as heck. And, <laughs> hey, me and, too. Uh, I love it. You know, I thought, oh, look, you know, <laughs> um, and uh, so I've always got to be involved in things. Um you know, when I was at Makers, there were a lot of challenges that kept me occupied, you know, getting the cost structure in line, getting the personnel structure in line, bringing the company from a capacity of 75,000 cases a year 
to a capacity of 1.56 million without moving the bullseye. You know, literally, you walk in the door and they said, look on the wall. You see that? That's the bullseye. Don't ever move it. And every once in a while, they get a micrometer out to make sure it hadn't moved. I could shrink the target. I just couldn't make it any, I just couldn't move it. And, uh, you know, and I'd go, yeah, but, but, you know, right. Yeah. But, but Sherry finished and, and it was, there's the bullseye. Don't move it. Um, and, and it wasn't that, that there's anything bad about makers at all, because it's still at the heart of my, of my love. But, uh, um, but there were other bullseyes that I needed to hit, um, you know, and, you know, and now, I mean, if you look at the portfolio of stuff, you know, I've got what's rated as the best dry whiskey in the world. I've got what's rated as um, the best American single malt. I've got what's rated as the best American Amaro. Um, I've got, uh, um, you know, great gins, great rums. I've got everything in the world. Um, you know, I get to, I really get to play hard and in, and in a wide range. And that, that really, really makes me happy. Do you think makers is kind of what put you on the map and kind of launched you into a career trajectory as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, I've always said um, there's no reason for me to ever get a big head about anything because everything, all of the major things in life were people giving me, th- gracious people giving me things that I probably didn't deserve. So whether it was West Point coming to me and offering me a scholarship to play football, Samuel's asking me to be his master distiller, um, all, you know, all of the major things were, were gracious people giving me things. And, uh, and, and clearly, if it hadn't been for Maker's Mark, you know, I'd, I'd probably still, you know, I'd, I'd, well, I'd still be trundling around the world building distilleries, but I, but I wouldn't have anywhere near the name recognition that I do now. So I want to rewind a little bit uh, schooling. And by the way, you know, it, I think it, it happens with almost every person's career when they step on good luck. It's just right time, right place, right? That's just how it happens. But when we step back in time with, uh, you know, your professor that kind of talked about, hey, there's this need in the uh, spirits world. I mean, did did were you actually training for that when you were getting your master's to actually learn about, you know, distillation and everything like that? Was that something that you had to learn after your master's? Oh, no. Distillation is, is an absolute part of the chemical engineering curriculum. Um, you know, I honestly, looking back on it, I wasn't contemplating making beverage alcohol when I was studying. I was just, I was thinking more along the lines of making gasoline. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but the principles of distillation are the same no matter what you're distilling. And, uh, um, and, uh, and all the ancillary equipment and everything that goes along with that. Um, and so, uh, so I was, you know, I was being prepared, even though I didn't know I was being prepared. And then I, I guess what I'm trying to think of the, the best way to frame this is there, a, you know, when, when you had that first job and, you know, got into the uh, consulting business for it, I mean, were you actually drinking whiskey at all back then? Or was there, at what oh. point did you actually find out that you actually like drinking whiskey? Oh, well, I, I'm, I'm going to tattle on myself a little bit. Um, yeah, I started drinking fairly early. Um, by the time I got to West Point, it, this is it was, you know, this is bad, but this is just what happened. Um, <laughs> we were all get to college, West Point, it's okay. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get to West Point, and you know, and and they give you this table of rules and regulations, and I, I kind of saw that as a cost, something to ex- to execute a cost benefit analysis on, <laughs> and, and uh, 
they give you this box and it's a lock box. And the thing is, I don't know, maybe three, four, three inches tall and six inches wide, 12 inches deep. I don't know. Maybe not quite, maybe eight inches. And, uh, and then I said, what's this? They go, what's a lockbox? It's for your valuables. And I go, what's a valuable? And they said, you know, your money, your jewelry, your watches. And I'm going, I don't have any of that. And uh, um, I said, besides, isn't this West Point? Don't you get kicked out if you steal things? And they go, just take the lockbox. It's uninspectable. Put whatever you want in there. I'm going, oh, okay. And so it began this, uh, this analysis, given the shape of the box, what spirit would could I get the largest volume bottle in the box? And by virtue of the shape, the Crown Royal bottle was the winner. <laughs> so at my first opportunity, I brought a Crown Royal bottle back and put it in the lockbox. And from then on, um, the Crown Royal bottle lived in the lockbox for the rest of my time at West Point and got replenished whenever I had opportunity. Um, so most of my time at West Point was spent drinking Crown Royal. Um, it's not a bad product, but the but the principal reason I drank it was because it was it was a tasty whiskey that just happened to fit in my lockbox. <laughs> That's the only reason. <laughs> that was the only reason. I'm really I told you I'm a very pragmatic individual, um, and my taste in whiskey has continued to evolve and and you know and and you know and I've I've grazed around quite a bit. But so four years of Crown Royal and you know and then. Uh, that I moved on to a number of other things and really didn't come back to whiskey in any particular manner until, um, until I started consulting. And kind of the rule, it's kind of like customer golf. When you consult, you drink whatever your customer is making. And my first year of consulting, I spent one week out of every three at Jack Daniels. And uh, so I immediately became a Jack Daniels drinker um, until I discovered Old Forster and my personal belief is that seven-year-old Forrester is one of the best things Brown Foreman ever made. And uh, so once I discovered Old Forrester, I'm going, yeah, I can do this. And, and I was uh, just keep giving me these gigs because I like drinking these things. And, uh, but um, wound up tasting my way through the universe of whiskey um, just by virtue of all the, the different clients that I got to consult with and uh, um, fell in love with the, with the whole the whole gamut of, of whiskey from, from bourbons through rye through scotch. Um, just, uh, and you know, I kind of pride myself now on working diligently to taste everything. So, you know, if I'm at a whiskey fest, the first thing I'm going to do is, is peruse the entire list and see what's on there that I haven't ever tasted yet. And then I will make sure I get to that table and taste that just so I can put it in my, in my blog book. Or is, or is the list figure out oh, one have I not had some sort of hand in dealing with? <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that is kind of, you know, kind of funny. Um, somebody asked me, you know, using the most liberal brush, um, what whiskeys have you not touched? And uh, so without going into great gory detail, um, y'all probably know my great granduncle, Colonel mm -hmm. E.H. Taylor. Oh, okay. So Colonel Taylor, as best I know, built the Buffalo Trace Distillery, the Old Crow Distillery, the Old Taylor Distillery, and the, the distillery that Woodford Reserve is now operating out of. Um, I built or assisted in building the distillery that that uh, that Heaven Hill's operating out of, the one that Maker's Mark's operating out of, and the Willett Distillery. And then I've consulted for um, 
the two beam distilleries and the uh, um, Four Roses distillery. So all that leaves in of major distilleries in Kentucky is uh, um, is wild turkey. But uh, if y'all have ever met Bruce Russell, um, we he he and I, he refers to me as his bad uncle. <laughs> we got to explain why his grandpa loves bourbon, his daddy loves bourbon, and he loves rye, and it's because of his bad uncle. <laughs> but uh, so so I've had you know at least a pinky influence in almost all of the major bourbons, and and then plus Jack Daniels and George Dickel. I've, so I've had a, a major influence in of some level. I shouldn't say major, an influence of some level at at most of them at some point in time. I got to realizing that I've that I've known three different master distillers at Four Roses and uh, you know five at Maker's Mark and and just goes on and on and then I realized well that just proves I'm old. <laughs> yeah, uh, we can call it seasoned, right? Yeah, seasoned. I'm, I'm a seasoned distillery veteran, um, but uh, current in the yeah. I think so in the currently active distillers in Kentucky, there's only one older than me, and that's Jimmy Russell. Yeah, well, he's. I, I think you got a few more years too, so you got you got some work to catch up to him. Yeah, there's a black gap. If I ever grow up, I want to be Jimmy Russell. <laughs> Just hang out at the gift shop and sign bottles all day. Oh, he's awesome. I you know I love him to death, and he you know he knows more about whiskey making than anybody I've ever met, and uh, and he is just a a kind gentleman and just a just a great friend, and he's got me in more embarrassing situations. <laughs> Talk about one of those. Oh my goodness! So uh, um, we were up at Whiskey Fest Chicago, um, and uh, that's the one place where the distillers can kind of get away from their handlers. And we always wind up at Delilah's, and we'll sit down with Mike Miller, the owner, and eventually he'll close the place, and we'll just kind of sit around and continue to chat for all hours. And and uh, so this was no different. Jimmy and I are sitting down at the at the bar, just chit chatting away, having a great time. But I knew that the Maker's Mark Mile was coming up, and I had a red eye to Lexington the next morning to to get the prep work done for the Maker's Mark Mile. And so, and I don't wear a watch, and so so I finally looked at Jimmy and said, "Jimmy, I could just stay here with you all night long. I got to get back to the hotel and get a little bit of shut eye, and I've got a really early flight, so I got to dash." Jumped up, ran out the door, flagged the cab back to the hotel. And I'm doing the Superman thing, ripping my clothes off as I'm diving into bed. Grabbed the phone, called the front desk and said, dude, I know this is going to sound weird, but I just need a little shut eye. Can you please give me a wake up call at 430? And the, the guy just starts laughing. And I go, what? And he goes, dude, it's already 445. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I jumped back out of bed, start throwing my clothes on. I said, well, the heck with a wake up call. Get me a cab. <laughs> and about five minutes later, I come flying back out of the elevator. The guy is still laughing at me while I'm running out the door to get to the cab to get to the airport. And, uh, and that was all thanks to Jimmy Russell. And, uh, um, and I'm sure that there is a hotel attendant who still laughs once in a while when he thinks about me. That's awesome. That <laughs> sounds like it was the, definitely the, the, the dash of shame having to run. I knew I was going to have to run right past this dude on the way to the front door. <laughs> and he's like, I know who you are. You <laughs> You're the drunk idiot that called me up. <laughs> so it seems that, you know, consulting is becoming a pretty big business or maybe it has for a few years, but, you know, at least with us, you know, we're, we're learning as we go and, and we, we, 
meet all these individuals in the past few years because we have the likes of you, Jim Rutledge, Nancy Fraley, Greg Metz, the list goes on. I mean, is there really uh, this much demand that's happening in the marketplace? I mean, you said that you're always constantly traveling. What about people that are just now starting to get into the uh, consulting business? I mean, is there is there still a lot of demand that's out there? Um, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but I've got more than I can say grace over. I cannot take um, all the people that want that want me to come and consult for them. Um, this coming year, um, I pretty much decided I'm I'm unless somebody makes a really good case, I probably am not going to take them um, or unless it's really interesting because I've got like five or six major expansions of existing clients to take care of. And uh, I mean, we're talking, you know, two of the distilleries by the time we're done expanding them will be larger than makers was when I started working for them. And uh, um, is that the Barstown bourbon company? No, I'm not, I, I'm not doing anything with Barstown. Okay. Um, but uh, the two in particular are, are Jay Rieger and company out of Kansas City and the Zach Brown distillery up in Dahlonega, Georgia. And uh, um, both of those are going to be pretty large complexes by the time we're done expanding them. But all in all, I think I've got about six major expansions, six or seven major expansions going on this year. So I guess during this process, are you also training like people that are there distilling while you're not there because you can't be everywhere. Right. I mean, I, I don't think they want to crown you master distiller at 50 different brands. They probably want somebody there that can be full time to sit there and move some knobs or pay attention to the computer right. screen. Um, so um, think of, you know, when you think of master distiller, think of executive chef. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not my job to, to turn the knobs and dials anymore. Although I can, it's my job to, to make sure all the equipment's right, that the people are right, the, that the recipes are right, that the quality's right. And uh, and I can do that without having to be there every day. Um, and But it does require hiring and training people that can that are capable of doing all the knob turning and the, and the, the daily um, inspections. Um, and I do have uh, um, a, 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 an ever-growing group of, of marvelous folks that... Uh, that I've had the opportunity to spend some time training with. And, uh, and I do take, uh, I do from time to time take an intern on where, where I'll, I'll bring them to a distillery and install them for a while and then come in and make sure that they get special attention and training. And if, do you take somebody on as well as your, as a tutelage that they can also get Delta platinum status by flying everywhere with you? <laughs> um, I, that's, that's up to them. But, uh, um, but, you know, I love passing things along to the next generation. Um, I, I just wish that, uh, that my own kids were, were, uh, um, were in this. My oldest daughter, I thought might be, she's a, a triple chemical engineer, bilingual French-English. We sent her off to work at Cavoisier for a while. She came back to get a little more schooling at Colorado School of the Mines and worked at uh, a little distillery called Golden Moon Distillery. And then met the love of her life, who trundled her off the middle of nowhere in Kansas. And um, so um, she is a. Uh, fortunately, she loves it. She's a stay-at-home mom. Um, my uh, oldest son is also a really good distiller. And uh, I mean, when he was five years old, he started coming to Maker's Market. You know, and I would tell him, "Look, there's just a few rules. Number one, you pick one person to follow, but you can't get under their feet. If anybody ever says you're in the way, you're done." You can ask them three questions during the day. And at the end of the day, on the way home, I'll answer anything you want. By the time he was 11, 
he could tell me if the tour guides were off message and, uh, and could probably run every piece of equipment in the distillery if, if called upon. But uh, I held off and wouldn't let him until he was legal. And at 21, I brought him to George Washington's distillery and he ran all five of those stills like they were tops. And I was so proud of him um, that I actually paid him. <laughs> um, I told him it was an unpaid internship, but he, but he did so well, I paid him anyway. Um, every once in a while, he still comes and, and distills with me, but he has kind of become a golden boy at, uh, at Cummins. He's, he's a, an engine, a, a mechanical engineer at Cummins right now because he wanted to prove that he wasn't riding daddy's coattails. And, you know, while I'm very, very proud of him for his success, I'm also sad because he's been so successful at Cummins that the likelihood of me getting him is rather small. <laughs> Um, you can't but I do hope to, uh, yeah. Pickerel and Sons consultant. No, my youngest son just recently said, hey, Dad, how come you never, you know, took me under your wing in that regard? And I said, well, you never asked. And he goes, I'm thinking about it. Could you get me an internship someplace? And I said, Joshua, all you have to do is tell me and I will get you an internship. So we're in discussions right now to see if he's really interested. But But if he is... Um, look out world. <laughs> so it sounds like your daughter that was a uh, professional student, you know, those, your grandkids will grow up at some point, right? So <laughs> she still has an opportunity a little bit later on. It's not like distillation. Distillation, I look at it like math. It's not changing too much, right? It's It's been the same for quite some time that you're not going to, it's not going to be like the tech world where you've got three months and then all of a sudden everything changes. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's the good news about it is the principles never really change. And and while the methods may change a little bit, but uh, by and large, it's not much. So, so when oh, so when you go into a new distillery and you have a new master distillery working with, what some of those problems experience that you help them with? Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it uh, a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. And with Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. And you can get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for $1 per month trial period at shopify.com bourbon, all lowercase, and go to shopify.com bourbon to take your retail business to the next level today shopify.com slash bourbon. If you're anything like me, then you can't get enough about bourbon. And that's why I'm a subscriber to Bourbon Plus magazine. Bourbon Plus is a quarterly publication that tells the stories from the heart of bourbon, the farmers who grow the grain, the distillers who labor over the process, and the people like you and me who raise their glasses to celebrate it all. Subscribe to Bourbon Plus magazine today at bourbonplus.com, that's P-L-U-S.com, and use code PURSUIT at checkout for $5 off your subscription.
So when you go into a new distillery and you have a new master distillery working with, what's some of those problems experience that you help them with? Oh, wow. All over the map. I mean, you know, one of them is, um, one of the big things is, is not making, the, uh, you know, appropriate heads and tails cuts or, or, or what they do with the heads and tails after they've cut them. Um, and those are, those are some of the things, uh, um, what do you mean by heads and tails cuts? Sorry. Um, so, so this is a cool thing. When you're a a a, a, um, a batch distiller, like most all craft distillers are, when you run the still, you get the opportunity that when it, when the spirit first comes up, it's of low quality um, and high proof, and that's the heads. And so you actually collect that and set it aside separately. Then you collect the hearts, which are the the good stuff, and then. Towards the end of the run, you get the tails or the low proof in, in, in pure alcohol, and that's called the tails. So in order to, to run your distillery, you take a heads cut and you take a tails cut and get those out of the way. I say that's like taking yuck and ug and getting rid of them and just keeping yuck. If you're running a, a column still, you don't have that capability because it's a continuous still and, and the heads and tails just come out as in, in, in part of the product. So it gives the... the um, the batch distiller a chance to to uh, actually have a higher quality product and to, to to have more degrees to manipulate when they're making their product. Um, and so, by teaching people the right time and the right manner to take the heads and tails cut, they can um, affect what their final product quality will be rather dramatically. And so, so that's something that I really help people with a lot. Some people meaning using my, my nose and my palate to make all my heads and tails cut. Some people aren't confident with that. So there are other methods that I can teach them as well um, to tr- both train their palate and to give them confidence. Um, but uh, I also help people with the economics of things, um, you know, getting, you know, saving energy, for instance. There's, you know, I've got all kinds of energy saving tricks up my sleeve. Um, um when they buy new equipment, getting getting good discounts and things like that. But uh, um, that's all part and parcel of it. Plus, you know, I'll work with them on on going to market as well. Um, you know, how to how to go sell, how to um, you know how many markets to choose, and that kind of thing as well. Just try to try to help them out and keep them focused if they need focus. How often do you get those those nine one one calls or somebody's off track and they're like, Dave, we don't know what's happened. Um, either the, you know, we're tasting it right now and it's not it's not tasting the way that you know it was a month ago or anything like that. Um, not often, but maybe two or three times a year. Um, when I do, they're dramatic. Um, you know, you know, without going into names, you know, I've had a distillery one time. They're getting ready to launch a new product. And as soon as they put proofing water in it, it clouded up. And, they, and it was like, oh, crud, we're supposed to be putting this in bottles in two weeks, and we don't know what we're doing. And we can't get it to quit clouding. And it's like, can you get here right now and help us figure out what's wrong? Um, you know, and, or, or, you know, I've been putting whiskey away in barrels for three months now, and I just pulled some out and tasted it, and I'm really, really not happy with the taste, and I'm obviously doing something wrong, and I don't know what it is. Um, it's usually dramatic when I get a 911. Um, or I've been putting whiskey away for a long time and it tastes musty. And you know, I've got a lot of money in this. What's, what do I do? What do you do? <laughs> oh, there's all kinds of tricks. You know, 
fire I mean, make, turn it into some cinnamon flavored whiskey at that point. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you can you can hide a lot of stuff by by altering the proof or putting some finishing on it or something like that. Or, um, I mean, the worst the worst news I ever gave a guy I got called in on a nine one one, and uh, and I told him I, I tasted his way through the whiskey and I said, dude. I got good news and bad news. The good news is I can get 50% more distillate out of your still per batch than you're getting right now by changing the way you distill. The bad news is you got to take the last three months of whiskey that you've put in the barrel and take it back out and redistill it because it's not going to get better. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you'd have thought I killed his dog. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but at the end of the day, it was the right answer for him because the worst thing you can do as a craft guy is go into the market and put something out there that's really disgusting and then try to fix it and follow it up with better tasting stuff because that you'll already have established a reputation. Um, so you got to hit the ground with good stuff. And, and I kind of want to touch on that, right? Because you're still heavily involved in these, uh, these craft movements. Ryan had asked you a little bit, some of those challenges. Um, what do you see as, as the, is the biggest challenge for the craft distillery in itself. Um, you know, what's facing them of getting their product out or anything like that. Uh, do you think that people that are starting up and they've got a young whiskey, do you think that that kind of hurts their brand in the very beginning? What, what do you think is their biggest challenge getting out there? Well, um, yeah, you, you've really hit on a couple things. Um, you know, most guys that start out are underfunded and they got to figure a way to keep the lights on. And, uh, um, you know, white whiskey was a thing for a while. That's obviously not a thing anymore. Um, people put vodka and gins out just, you know, and, and if they do, I tell them, be pragmatic. You're not going to sell it much past your backyard. Um, you know, have a tour operation because visitors like to buy vodka and gins out of the tour shop. But don't plan on it being a national product. You know, um, just sell what you need to keep the lights on. Um, and then try to, you know, we, you know, we try to, suggest there are ways you can make maybe two-year-old whiskey or younger whiskey. You, there are things you can do to, to help it along so that it's, it's palatable and promising while you're waiting for a four to five-year-old to come out. And uh, so I try to coach them up on those, those techniques and methods as well. Um, the biggest problems though are more, are more distribution driven. A, a lot of craft guys think that their distributor is their sales force. And they're really not. They're an order taker and a delivery agent. And they're their sales force. And uh, if you just hand your product to a, you know, and you got, you know, you're a brand new distillery and you got no case volume and you hand your product to a distributor, they're not going to grow your brand very much. They're going to put it in where they're obliged. And unless you find somebody that can be a real brand champion, um, it's not going to help. You need to go, you know, I always tell people, if you're going to go to, to, to Kentucky, you plan on on two weeks in Louisville, just knocking on doors and shaking hands and kissing babies and putting it in front of the the bar managers and liquor store owners. And then you spend another week in Lexington and another week in Northern Kentucky. Then you come back next quarter and do it again. And uh, that uh, that you are your sales agent because people listen more to the owner or the maker than they do to a marketing or sales guy. Um, and that's you know, so many times guys just get so in the weeds that they just they just don't do that. And then their brand gets hurt because it doesn't grow like they need to. Um, the other half, which is 
part of the same puzzle is is going is is casting your net too broadly up front. I always tell people, best thing you can do is own your own backyard first. So so define a backyard and then whatever it is, stay there until you've sold every case you can sell and you have some left over. And then go to the next market because the cheapest the cheapest cases you can sell are the ones you sell in your backyard. And that's where people know you the best and you've got favorite son status because you're local and all that kind of stuff. So practice, get real good at that and then move out. And, uh, and the people that, that, you know, wind up selling five cases in each of 50 States really hurt themselves and they're probably limiting their upside substantially. Do you think it's harder for a, a craft distillery in Kentucky like I, I get what you're saying, like in your own backyard, um, like where if you're not in Kentucky, where there's, you know, this, the big boys are already here. Do you think it's a challenge for a startup here to, I guess, get their foot in the door because like they are going up against the big boys oh, yeah. in their own backyard? It is. It, it's, it's tough for a craft guy to take Kentucky as their backyard. Um, it's not impossible. I mean, look what Willett's done. Um, you know, with, with the Willett line, the Noah's Mill, Rowan Creek, um, you know, all those, they've done a marvelous job of it. But it is it is much tougher. Um, now, what I will say is you do have a have a, a, a ready-made market, though, because of the urban bourbon trail. And so there's the pressure among, you know, if you're on the urban bourbon trail, you got it. You got to keep your numbers up because part of it's a competition over how many whiskeys on the back bar. And so being able to say, hey, I'm a local dude and I've got a whiskey right down the street and you want to be on the urban bourbon trail, you should probably pick mine up. So you do get a, a ready-made audience of folks that will pick it up just because it's it's local and and especially if you pop in and say hey to them and show a little love. Um, but by and large, it's, it's you know, given that I've, I've built distilleries in, I don't know, 30, 25, 30 states. Kentucky is one of the hardest ones to crack into for a backyard. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you talked about creating distilleries for almost 50 pretty different. And I guess the idea is, are you going through and customizing for every single one of these or is it, or is it trying to produce something similar everywhere? Because when I think about it, um, yeah, I, I take it from my own experience inside the tech world. Like people can, they can piece part things together or you can buy a ready-made system. So is there, is there a, like a Dave Pickerel skew where you can say, here's three options, choose the best one for you. <laughs> and that's how we're going to build it. Yeah. Um, I am really, really careful. Um, at the end of the day, when I talk to the owner, I mean, there are a couple exceptions because I am owner in a couple of them, but uh, with the exception of the places where I actually have an ownership stake, um, I'm very clear, this is not my product, it's yours. It's your job to tell me what your vision is, what you want it to taste like, what you, how you want it to perform, and then it's my job to tell you how to make that the best you can. And uh, um, and uh, the result is, you know, I've got so many different variables that I can play with, um, from, you know, mash bill, still design, um, distillation methods, fermentation methods, um, yeast strains, just on and on and on, all the way up to how you handle the barrels, what the chars and toasts and everything are. There's so many different variables that that if I can get the owner to articulate, this is what I want it to be like, we can, we can go after that and hit it pretty hard. And then what I try to do in their infancy is to help them to 
not have to compete directly with other guys that I work with and, until they're big enough to handle it. And then once they're big enough to handle it, it's go get them, boys. And, uh, um, but, um, but by and large, um, it's not a, it's not a, a cut and dried paper doll. Um, we, we ultra customize every single one to be, to try to meet the dreams of the owner. So, uh, you know, the, the big craft movement right now, and this kind of came as a, a question from one of our listeners, and I'm trying to spin it because the, the whole craft movement, you see a lot of people that want to talk about oh, grain to glass. We, we source everything from a 20-mile radius. What's your theory on sourcing grains? Because when we look at some of the, the big boys, Heaven Hill, Wild Turkey, they're like, we'll get whatever quality grains. It doesn't matter if we're shipping them for Iowa. It doesn't really matter, right? So what's what's sort of your theory on that? Um, it's, it's great. Um you know, there's nothing wrong with going and getting grain. I mean, especially if you're buying commodity because you can get, you know, when I was at Makers, I put my head on the pillow. You know, the grain's a commodity. I can write the spec however way I want. I've got money. And I'm going to get exactly what I want. And uh, um, and at the time, I actually did a calculation. If the grain price doubles, what does it do to the cost of goods sold? And I think it added 16 cents to a bottle. And uh, I'm going... Okay, so grain can't really hurt me. So, um, so the big guys don't really have much of a choice. But if you're a little guy and you have the opportunity to grow your own, it allows you to control more variables. I mean, you can control the exact varietal that you use, and and uh, um, you know, so like, you know, at, at, at Hill Rock, we we our rye is Danko rye. We bring it in from Poland because it's a better strain for making whiskey with. At Whistlepig, we use uh, Rifle and Musketeer from Western Canada because it's better strains than you can buy in the United States because it's um, you know most of it's Arusta. Um, I get to work with you know I start working with the national seed banks trying to get old uh, old uh, um, you know um, heirloom varieties. Um, you know we're starting to bring back Hickory King and, and Hickory Cane corn because of some of the cool cherry notes that you get from it. Um, so there is something to be said for grow your own um, because you can control it better and, you know, all the way down to the moisture contents and exact, the exact day that you harvest it. So there is something to be said for it, for the quality that you can attain. Um, I actually have like five distilleries that, that uh, the whistle pig grows their own grain, Hill Rock grows their own um, ragged branch in, in South central Virginia is right in the middle of their grain field, whiskey acres in, is uh, up in DeKalb, Illinois, and it's right in the middle of a cornfield. It's a bunch of corn farmers that were bored in the winter and decided they needed to have a distillery. And then, <laughs> and then way up north um, in Minnesota, far north distillery. I have to give it a little bit of an accent. It's in Minnesota. And, uh, and that one was great fun because we wanted to grow corn, and corn is not native up there. And, uh, you know, when you look at that, they're typically corn hybrids have, have numbers, and the numbers tend to be triple digits, and, it, and that's essentially from the day you plant to the day you harvest, how many days that is. So in Kentucky, that tends to run the 130s to low 140s. We had to find a varietal of corn that, would, that was 76 days just because that's the length of their growing season. And that was the hardest challenge is finding corn that you could plant and harvest in the same year. And uh, um, but we did it, and uh, so far north actually grows their own grain. Um, but those are the only five I've got that right now that that really have decided to invest the effort. And 
And it's, gosh, it's so much harder. I mean, you know, when I was at Makers, I honestly didn't worry too much about grain. You know, it says, I make this back, you know, when GM became an issue, you know, we said, all right, I'm not going to buy GM grain. What do I do? And, you know, I figured out how to, how to arrange farmers so we didn't have to buy any GM grain. Um, but there really, other than that, there wasn't much worry. It was just make sure it was here on time. But when you grow your own, all of a sudden you're worried about, you know, am I planting it too early? Am I planting it too late? You're worried about bugs and weather, drought, you know. Weather is going to be too cold. Is it not going to be cold enough? You just start worrying about everything. I become a nervous Nelly about grain. and uh, Yeah, because you live and die by that. I mean, you know, if if our grain crop fails, what do we do? Well, yeah, because corn's a great summer, you know, grain or crop or whatever. But rye is, you know, rye and wheat, I mean, they don't particularly grow that great here. You know, they're they're winter cover crops, but... Yeah, you know, it seems like up north, but but normally you got to go a little farther north to get rye because rye likes rye likes lousy weather and bad soil. It's kind of the brat of all grains. You know, rye. It's like rye says, "I dare you, go ahead." You know, you know, <laughs> throw me on that rock, I'll grow. You know, give me clay soil, I don't care. You know, and and on top of it, it actually has its own natural pesticide, so it chokes out all the other grain and it kills any bug that might wander into the field. Uh, so, so rye is a really hardy winter crop. It just likes to have a. It, it likes to freeze out in the winter and get a and get a ton of snow on top of it. And, but but it's just perfectly situated for northern areas. Mm-hmm. So another question about the the sourcing aspect of it. So you said you know whistle pig sources theirs from Canada. Um, you know Hill Rock brings theirs from Poland. I think you said something like that. It's the seed. The, the seeds are brought in, so we actually grow it, but we bring the seeds in from there just because American seeds are typically aroostook, which is a great cover crop but a lousy whiskey crop. Gotcha. The, the idea you're trying to get at, how do you know this is particularly good? I mean, are you are you going out in the field, pulling it, and just sticking your mouth and chewing it and saying, like, oh, this is some good rye right here? Or do you really realize it after the distillation process and then you, you understand that this is this is a good rye? No, no, you you know beforehand. I mean, it's things like how plump the berries get, um, how tall the stalks are going to get, how brittle they get right before harvest. I mean, there are things you know about the performance of a crop going in, and uh, um, and uh, you know I can adjust the spiciness. So if if I say, all right, I'm going to use rifle and musketeer, and uh, um, and after the harvest comes in, then I'll taste it and see how spicy it is. I may alter my mash build just a little bit, maybe add a little bit more malted barley to it to tone down the spice if it's a little too spicy. But but uh, um, it's pretty easy to to know and determine. Um, gotcha. Same with corn. You know, if I'm, you know, I particularly like to play with hickory king and hickory cane corn. They're they're kind of white varieties. They look like big. They look like uh, like miniature spongebob um and uh you know that they're, they're really really wide and not very thick and and it's it's kind of got a, a pale whitish yellow um it mills really well and uh particularly well for corn and it yields well and one of the fun things for me is even the distal it has a dark cherry note to it which is just incredible and so i've been encouraging guys you know let's bring that one back so we've got a number of farmers that have been building up their stockpile of, of Hickory King and Hickory Cane just for distillers that I work with. 
but uh, cool. but yeah, it's you you know you kind of know. I mean, we had to play a little bit to know that that they were going to give us some dark cherry notes. But once we did, it was like, oh yes, we're doing all of this. I got you. So I, I guess you know before we kind of close this out, I, I want to touch on some of the brands. Just you're very heavily involved in the whistle pig still. So kind of talk a little bit more about where they are currently the, the current, uh, you know, being sourced being how, how long until it's blended or, you know, until it's on its own stock. And then, uh, yeah, so we'll start there first. Okay. So when we started in Vermont, we were a little naive and, uh, um, you know, we expected the business climate to be about the same as it was in New York or any other state. Um, and we quickly discovered that uh, that it's a little more difficult. Let's just leave it at that. And uh, it took four and a half years to convince the government that they should give us a building permit. Um, and so our dream of just starting there was was popped pretty quickly. Um, and we knew we had a perishable window. Um, so we started out going up to Alberta because they were the only distiller in the world at the time capable of doing what we wanted, which was which was 100% rye and then double barrel aging it. And so uh, um, I'd already ring fenced some whiskey there. Um, and uh, um, and so we just went and said, all right, we, we obviously need to, to work with you guys. So we're going to take this, the whiskey Dave's ring fenced. And then we need you to also contract the still for a while while we're getting our ducks together. So our 10-year-old is is um, distilled from Alberta. It still is right now, um, as is our 15-year-old. Um, the uh, um, 12-year-old, um, because I wanted to use um, Verdello Madeira as one of the finishing um, barrels, I knew that that was going to make it really spicy. And 100% rye with a Verdello Madeira finish on it is undrinkable. Um, and uh, so I needed I needed to have a little malt. So we went to MGPI because their batch bills 95% rye and 5% malt, which and a malt kind of acts like a mute to cut the spiciness a little bit which brought it into the playground so that we could use Verdella Madeira without, without offending the palate. Um, so our 12-year-old um, is uh, from MGPI. Well, we finally, after four and a half years, got a building permit, and then two more years, we got a distill, a distill up and running. So for about 26 months now, we've been running our still as hard as we can run it. And uh, people are asking, when are we going to get to see your distill? And uh, there's two wrong answers. The first one is, just give me another eight years. Um, the other wrong answer is, let's pull out the white dog. Um, you know, that, that, that ship has sailed. But there are, there's got to be a yes in there someplace. And so for us, the yes is a transitional product that we call farm stock. And we're just at the tail end of crop one right now. And rye crop zero one is... Uh, tells three stories. It tells the story of our transition from Alberta to Indiana to Vermont. It tells the story of our transition from single terroir, the use of just our water, to double terroir using our water and wood from our fields to make our barrels, to triple terroir using water, grain, and wood all from the same fields. We think we're the first distillery in the world to be able to claim that. Um, and uh, so it's so crop rye crop one is 20% distillate from Vermont. It's a year to 18 months old triple terroir. Um, the next 49% of five to six year old from Alberta, that's double terroir. And the last 31% is, uh, um, 12 year old from MGPI, the single terroir. And, uh, then, um, 
put it all together, bottle it at 86 proof. It's real nice, easy drink. It's a it's an entry level into the rye world. Um, and while it's holistically delicious, you can still taste the components, which is important because the third story is, oh, by the way, we got our own still up and running. So it's nice for you to be able to taste a little bit of our of our distillate so you can monitor its progress. Next year, we'll be at crop two. And rye crop two will be a higher percent of in-house spirit at an older age. So each year we'll have a new rye crop out and it'll be a little more ours at a higher proof or, or at a higher percentage and, a, and an older age until it's finally our 100% our, our in-house distillate. Um, so that's how we're going to get to in-house distillate. Um, it'll be a lengthy process, but but uh, then, you know, we're going to let the whiskey tell us exactly how long it is. So I, I've, um, I'm just glad that I've kind of got next year's ready. Next year's will be straight rye. Um, and... Uh, um, so and are that's you pushing the same mash bill throughout all three of those? Or are you taking the 100% Alberta, uh, 95.5 MGP, and then putting your own spin on your mash bill there as well? Or is it? So our mash bill is also 100%, although I, I don't claim 100% because I want the ability to, to modify annually based on the spiciness of that year's harvest. So add maybe a percent or two of malt to tone it down a little bit. But essentially, we're 100% rye. The, the main thing we claim is we're all Monongahela rye, which is rye with no corn in it. Um, that's really important to us. And honestly, I wish there were two different names. I, I wish it wasn't just all rye. Because rye that's that's 51% rye and heavy in corn um, tastes more like bourbon. Mm-hmm. And rye that has no corn in it at all is really a much more spicy grain. Uh, and uh, so I wish there were two different names for it. But, uh, you know... The, the, it used to be there were. There was Maryland-style rye and Monongahela rye, and people have kind of forgotten that. And so I'm kind of trying to help people remember it again. <laughs> so I, I quickly just want you to touch on Boss Hog, right? Because I think that for people that are into the whiskey world, they see Boss Hog, they see that uh, that silver emblem of the flying pig on top and <laughs> shock. So about what that is um, and then the pricing behind it too. I'm pretty sure you don't have anything to deal with pricing, but – you know what? What the what the real attraction is there? Okay, so um, so Boss Hog is a, a vintage product for us, and uh, um, we can't use the word we can't declare a vintage because the government says that's reserved for wine. They say that they they say that people would be deceived into thinking there was wine in the bottle and would accidentally overconsume. <laughs> um, I think I have more faith in the American people than the government does, um, but uh, nonetheless, we can't call it a vintage. So. We were sitting around a campfire, which we love to do, and, and we were just talking about, well, what is it? And somebody said, well, it's boss. It's the best thing we make. And it took like a nanosecond to go from boss to boss hog because there's a little piggy humor in everything we do, which means that every time we have a launch party, yes, I dress like boss hog. Um, <laughs> so it's rather epic to see me in an all-white outfit looking like boss hog. Um, but I do. Um, and then uh, – um, but there's five promises. The first is it will be single barrel. The second is it'll be barrel proof. The third is, regardless of the proof, it will not burn the back of your throat. Um, we actually released 135 proof round the first round of Boss Hog, and it was warm in the chest and warm in the mouth, but did not burn the back of your throat. Um, the fourth promise is it'll be distinctly unique from anything I've ever done, which means every time I do it, it gets harder. Um, and the, fourth, the, the fifth is it'll be stupendous. If I can't do all five, we just won't have a boss hog. And we've only had 
four, four boss hogs in our eight years of history. Um, this round um, is, uh, we call it the Black Prince. There's a little history behind it. Um, so the Black Prince was Prince Edward of Woodstock. He was a crown prince in England back during the era when England and France fought each other all the time. And he decided he was going to earn his chops, and he mustered up an army and went to France and raided. And, and he kind of did the Willie T. Sherman thing. He was burning his way through France. And, and uh, he got the name the Black Prince because of, of the scorched earth policy. He got to the Armagnac region of France and found all this wonderful elixir and fell in love with it. And as best I understand, he quit burning France, collected up the Armagnac and took it home. And uh, so we celebrate the love of Armagnac from the Black Prince because this particular round is 14-year-old and then it's finished in Armagnac casks. Um, it's a little on the pricey side. Um, we, we really did have a lot of discussions. It's expensive because it's hard to get a hold of Armagnac cask and you got to spend a pretty penny to get them and you can only use it a couple times. Um, but uh, we also um, are concerned about the secondary market um, because we want people to drink this. It was voted 2017 best whiskey in the world at the San Francisco International which is quite an honor. I believe we're the first rye whiskey, American rye, to ever get that honor. And we're the youngest company to ever get that honor. And we want people to be able to taste it. And if we put the price down at, you know, 200 250 a bottle, um, we were just afraid it was all going to get consumed in the secondary market and that people would treat it like Beanie Babies and no one would ever get to taste it. And so, uh, so we discussed and discussed and we asked around a lot and we finally decided that the shelf price needed to run somewhere around 500 bucks because that would get a, a balance that would still allow people to sell it at a bar and uh, people could get could, could afford a dram. Um, and But it would be high enough to cut off a lot of the secondary market purchases. And, and, and having seen in retrospect, I can say I think we succeeded because um, – you know, bars are really happy that they got their allocation of it, and and it's doing very well. And um, so, I'm, so I'm pleased to see that. Um, so that's kind of how we got there. And I know it's. Yeah, I apologize for folks that that see it as really hefty price, but but that's the rationale. Is that first of all, it was really expensive to make, and second of all, we're we're trying to cut off a little bit of the secondary traffic. I mean, that's that's interesting because you hear of people that want to do that, but they really don't. Um, I mean, Sazerac talks about all the time. However, they don't really do anything about it. So you're really the first one that's come out and said that, you know, going to try to price it out, which I think it, it is done. I mean, you don't really see it floating around. Nobody talks about it too much of trying to sell it. Uh, however, I mean, I know there's local groups and they'll take a picture and they'll, you know, they'll see a sign at Kroger like $489 and say, whoever wants it, go get it. Right. Yep. So it, it does help people in that regard, the people that really wanted it. I guess uh, you're going to have to send us a, a whistle pig gift card or something to help offset the cost so we can try <laughs> something as well. <laughs> oh, man. If I just happen to be in Louisville, I'll stop by and see if I can bring a bottle for you. Well, awesome. we can, if we can find you in the hour that you're here, we can do that. Wow. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, two more questions about uh, two more other distilleries. So this one comes from Chris Haynes. He's a Patreon supporter, and he wants to know about uh, Saint Augustine. Uh, said he said according to the website that you helped design the production facility and guided the final blending. He's interested to hear your thoughts on it and uh, you know how it's going to do here in the future. Um, it is. That's great. Yeah. That, I, this was a, a pet project of mine. Um, 
we we actually put it in an historic building. It was an old ice house, and this this place used to make ice cubes the size of rail cars um, to ship down when when the when Florida was new and in a railroad down the peninsula. They needed to get ice down there, and that's what they did. Is they built the they made this facility that would make great railroad car size ice cubes. They'd pick them up, pack them in straw, and then send them down south. Um, obviously, that technology got obsoleted eventually, and this place went out of went out of business. And, and we built a distillery and a and a really nice uh, bar and restaurant called the Ice House in there, or the Ice Plant, I think. But uh, um, um, it's founded on the concept of local ingredients. Um, so they they're using like a, a rum agricole from from heirloom uh, um, um, sugar canes in the area. They've got a, a gin that's citrus forward, so they can take advantage of all the citrus. Um, they've got a vodka that's citrus based, um, so that they can take advantage of the local um, fruits again. Um, even their uh, whiskeys, they went to the Department of Agriculture and, and recruited farmers to grow their grains. Um, and uh, um, one of the fun things is they're um, we're we're port finishing their their uh, their bourbon. Um, there's a San Sebastian winery is literally right across an an open field from their distillery. And we were just talking, you know, one day, you know, we'd really, we're getting ready to prepare this bourbon for sale. We'd really like to finish in something. What should we do? And just about that time, the owner of San Sebastian calls up and goes, Hey, I just dumped all these port barrels. Do you guys want to trade? And we're going, yes, we do. <laughs> and literally we rolled the port barrels across the field and filled them up with bourbon. And so you cannot get a fresher fill, um, which really helps to, to develop the dark chocolate notes and everything. And it's, it makes it really fun. The other thing about St. Augustine, it's a bit of a challenge, is the whiskey ages in dog years. Um, you know, you know, distilleries talk about how the whiskey goes through diurnal temperature swings and kind of sits dormant in the winter. Um, well, the temperature never gets below 42 there. Um, yeah, they're right on the Gulf Coast, or, or right on the Atlantic Coast, and uh, um, with the Gulf Stream running up there, it, the weather stays warm all year, and so the whiskey continues to mature all winter, moving in and out of the barrel. Um, so, you know, we're, we'll have a little education issue because people are, you know, they want to compare year on year. I mean, people still want to compare bourbon years against Scotch years, and that's so wrong. Um, but uh, um, but it's a really fun and and delicious product, and and uh, um, you know, they've kind of defined their backyard as as Florida and, and Georgia. And, uh, um, you know, I don't even know if they'll ever leave Florida and Georgia, but they're enjoying a fairly nice success there right now. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time because you just gave me another question for hopefully the next podcast we do with you. <laughs> but I want to ask a question about Hill Rock. So kind of help them a little bit. Okay, so uh, so Hill Rock um, is an estate distillery. We grow all of our grains organically, corn, rye, and barley. Even have our own malt house, um, and uh, we have three product lines. and the, And the fun thing is, we were funded well enough that we just sat on whiskey. Um, so we built the first American Solera. It's a true Solera to age our our uh, bourbon. Um, we copied the Lustau. I figured theirs has been successful for four, for two hundred years plus. I think that's probably okay for us to copy. And so, so literally we've got four tiers just like them. Um, weighted average age, yeah, a little over nine years. Um, and uh, um, we had to do some negotiation with the government. 
But uh, the top tier we call the nursery, and we try to hold the whiskey up there four years before we let it move down through the system. Um, and then, uh, so the first barrel, the first tier are all brand new barrels. And every time we empty one, we just replace it with a new brand new barrel. Um, then the second and third tiers are, uh, are ex-bourbon barrels. The bottom tiers, ex-Olorosa sherry barrels. Um, and one enthusiast gave us a 96. The last year, the Spirits of the Americas um, had a competition. We won Best Spirit and Show. Um, and that was all spirits, North, South, and Central America. Um, really nice product. It's a nice drink, um, well-aged, got a little bit of sherry influence to it, That uh, just a touch to give you a little a little dry nuttiness and floral fruitiness, but uh, really good. Um, they also have a double cask rye, um, uh, spicy on the front end, caramel, butterscotch, and vanilla back end. Um, and they've got a, a, a single malt that was rated the America's best single malt at 97 points. Um, and it's essentially a good scotch that's not made in Scotland. Um, it's a 30 to 50 ppm. Um, we, uh, we do everything the way they do in Scotland. As soon as we're happy with the color, we put it into a used barrel because that's where it belongs. Um, when it's done, we uh, um, finish it first in Pedro Jimenez and then Oloroso. So we get the sherry influence, the whole thing. Um, and when you taste it, um, the fun thing is we bottle it at a, at, a, at a good inflection point in the proof curve. So just a couple of drops of water and you can change the smoke level to your liking. Um, you can change the, uh, the alcohol effect to your liking. So it's a lot of fun. Great, great scores all around. And we're really playing around with finishes. So if you, we've got a cab finish bourbon that's, that's to knock your socks off. I say it's like a bourbon with uh, cherries and berries sprinkled on top of it. <laughs> then uh, we've got three different rye finishes that are available, um, a Sauterne finish, a Port finish, and a Madeira finish. Madeira um, is a Verdello style, and it kicks up the spice, so that one's rye for spicy rye lovers. The Port brings out dark chocolate notes, so that one's like rye for dark chocolate lovers. I mean, literally, if you drink it, then let it slide down your throat and then open your mouth and breathe in. It's like somebody's painting dark chocolate on your tongue. Um, and then the uh, Sauterne finishes as uh, just sweetens it up a little bit for people that want their rye a little sweeter. Um, so we're having, we're having great fun. Um, you know, it's a smaller niche company where we're literally, that's one of my expansions. We're going to like double the capacity over the next year probably. And, uh, but we're having a lot of fun with that limited distribution kind of a, east coast plus california yeah that's awesome yeah very cool yeah i mean dave i think we we've hit on uh, a lot of different things you know we've hit on your history we've hit on just distillation and techniques and your knowledge we've hit on your brand so we've uh i think i think we've got more questions that we could even go on another hour but we're going to save that to to <laughs> yeah, do a to be do respectful another. your time yeah we're at some point awesome well, i would love to come back on yeah. But thank you. It's been great fun. Just getting warmed up, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, just real quick, if people want to know more about you, uh, the brands that you touch, um, Oakview Consulting, where can they do that? Um, the easy answer is to just find me on Facebook at Dave Pickerel. And the fun thing is there's not a lot of Dave Pickerels in the world. So I, you can find me on Facebook or Instagram. And uh, um, that's the easiest way to, to track what's going on. Great. Cool. 
Well, awesome. So make sure you follow Dave, but also follow us, Bourbon Pursuit, on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also leave reviews for us on iTunes, subscribe on iTunes, subscribe on YouTube. Then you don't have to actually go and figure out, look at the list and say, which one do I want to download? It It automatically shows up in your feed, right? So you'll be able to get all the great shows that we're pushing out uh, right to your earbuds and uh, into your eyes as well. And if you do like the show, make sure you please support us, patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash bourbon pursuit uh we've got some others to, to actually help you know support the show and you get t-shirts koozies and all that kind of cool stuff to uh to help you know grow our brand and and everybody loves cool t-shirts right so that's right uh, and koozies keep your beer cold uh <laughs> no thanks dave that was awesome i'm I, i'm amazed at how you keep track of all these different things you got going on you know being an add or myself i'm like my head's about to explode <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, thanks again. Appreciate it. Yeah, much appreciated. And uh, guys, if you have any show suggestions, comments, feedback, we love hearing from you. Uh, we just want to keep bringing you great content. So please let us know if you have any ideas for us. And uh, we'll see you next time. <laughs>